TorahCafe.com. Every Jewish holiday has significance relating to the day itself, as well as a deeper dimension, holding profound implications for daily life and the Jewish life cycle. The following segment features Mrs. Shimona Tsukernik, an international lecturer and founder of OMEC, a nonprofit organization dedicated to in-depth transformational learning and living. Mrs. Tsukernik will introduce the first sentence of the Megillah and delve into its deeper meaning. She will offer insight into our approach to life as a whole, as well as practical application for daily lives. Hi, happy Purim. I thought what we'd do today is look at the first verse of the book of Esther and see what lessons we can take away for our lives. As we're taught, the word Torah comes from the word Hora'ah, instruction, and I haven't fully learned it until I've managed to apply it to my life. So the first verse begins and says, It was in the days of Ahasuerus. He is the Ahasuerus who ruled from India to Ethiopia, over 127 states. And then we hear what actually happened in those days uh, in the next verse and the rest of the rest of the Megillah. The Megillah is set in a time of suffering, and it was that first word our sages tell us, Vayahi, is about suffering. There are many ways of introducing stories in the Bible, in Tanakh, in the prophets, the Vayahi and the Haya. But this one, Vayahi, is a time of suffering. And a clue and insight into this has to do with the Hebrew meaning of the word. Yahi is future tense. It will be. But the word Vayahi means it was. That's a clue. Sometimes I have my whole life ahead of me. I'm waiting for my future. I'm excited. I wake up in the morning and I want to get going at my day. And sometimes I want the day to be over. You know, I remember a couple of years ago when my kids, two of my kids were little, and uh, it must have been, I had told them to uh, not come into the bedroom too early in the morning. But I I overheard them speaking and uh, saying it was like the crack of dawn, maybe it was 5 a.m., and one of them says to the other, you know, I think it's the morning time. And his brother says, yeah, I think so too. He says, you think we can get up? Yes. And they both got up and ran out of, ran out of the room. And I had that sense to myself, when was the last time I was so excited to be waking up and living my day? Being in the present, but open and happy about the prospects that life is bringing to me. The other way of beginning a story we find is Vahaya. And uh, that's actually the opposite. The word haya is past tense, but when we say it was, but when we say vahaya, we mean it will be. That's the opposite. It means I want to take my past and make it over. Like I, I want to carry it to the future. I would. I, I have such a richness that is in the behind me. I want to bring that into my life and make it part of my future. So we're not talking here about not living in the moment and being present, but, you know, as 
as we live and go through our lives, we want to take that memory of a rich past, a wonderful childhood, and even if it's not our own childhood, it's the history of the Jewish people, and carry that forward into the future. There are opinions that the word Vayahi is sad, indicates sadness, <clears throat> not because of this notion that we're, we're discussing here, which is I want my... I want the day to be over. I want yes. I want tomorrow to be yesterday already. Not because of that, but because the verse begins by It was in the days of Achashverosh. That means, who do my days belong to? Who does my time belong to? Am I the master of my time? Is uh, Facebook, Twitter, the internet? Are they the masters of my time? And at a larger metaphysical level, it means who's governing what's happening in the world today? I don't mean one individual power, but there are energies that are operating in the world. Is it an energy of light or is it the energy of a despot? You know, Ahasuerus was an autocrat and a, a totalitarian regime that oppressed people to a great degree, and, and he wanted to wipe out an entire nation. He, he, he's like a Hitler, an Ahmadinejad. And here comes this person, and, and the Megillah tells us, it was in the days of Ahasuerus that these days belonged to him. He made a feast to celebrate his power. He was a king, made this feast to celebrate. And what did he have at his feast? Vessels from the temple. And the Jewish people went to that party, went to his feast that went on and on. It was filled with you know, immorality and uh, inappropriate behavior from a Torah perspective. And here they went and the, the vessels that were being used were vessels that were from the holy temple. They should have been weeping with pain. What does it mean that truth and light has been lost and now is being used as a vessel to serve this wicked person and, and his honor. But they didn't. They, they rejoiced at the party, and therefore we are told it was a time of mourning, vayahi, a time of sadness and difficulty for the Jewish people. Then the Megillah goes on, and it says, it was in the days of Ahasuerus, and it repeats the word, who Ahasuerus, he is Ahasuerus, which seems to be a, a really redundant thing. Why do I need that in there when you could just tell me it was in the days of Ahasuerus who ruled from India to Ethiopia, etc.? We are taught Ahasuerus had various faces. It was in the days of Ahasuerus, and he is the very same Ahasuerus. You know, you meet someone and they present one face. And then time goes by and they present another face. But the question is, are you still the same person? In Hebrew, when we look at parts of the body, the plural things like my hands, my feet, my eyes, that ends with the, the suffix im, yudmem, yadayim, enayim, oznayim, my ears. If something is singular, then it's different. Pe is a mouth and af is a nose. But the Hebrew word for face is panim, plural. I have one face and yet the Hebrew term is two faces. 
because at some level we are all two-faced. I've got this face and this face. I show you one thing and I mean a different thing. And our goal is to work on ourselves to the point that panim becomes panim, inwardness. That it's one face that is reflecting what is inside of my heart. So the Megillah tells us, you know, here is Achashverosh. He is the same Achashverosh. Don't be fooled. He was nice and he invited you to the party. And then he was ready to sign your death warrant onto the trains, to the gas chambers. And then he says, no more. We'll take that. We'll nullify that. Let's be friends. I'll give you this. I'll give you that. It's the same Achashverosh from the beginning to the end. And in fact, the name Achashverosh is connected, in Hebrew is broken up of two parts, Ach and Rosh, a brother to the head, which means that he was related, he was a spiritual brother to Nebuchadnezzar, who was the leader that preceded him. In fact, he was married to Vashti, who was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. So here we have this idea of someone coming in and taking over our consciousness, kind of co-opting us into his reality. And that is a time of suffering. And he shows us a nice face, a kind, friendly face, and turns away from us. It's the same Achashverosh. The verse continues and says, He ruled from Haidu to Kush, which is from India to Ethiopia. What's the significance for us? On the one hand, we're understanding that this was a very large empire, the, the Persian Empire. At another level, there's obviously some significance in this. Now, the Talmud debates where these states were and which they were. And we are told that Rav and Shmuel had a discussion. One said, Haidu and Kush were next to each other. And the other said they were at opposite ends of the kingdom. So I guess that would be like saying a leader rules, let's say, over America, a president rules over America uh, as between New York and New Jersey, which are adjacent to each other, or between New York and California, which are at opposite ends of the country. Both capture something that is different about the, the nature of rule, one is that it's very vast and it can reach to opposite ends of the kingdom. The other is that there's this tight rule of one thing being next to the other. But there is a deeper explanation. In a book called Mechir Yayin, which is written by Reb Moshe Isselis, he looks at the entire Megillah as an analogy, a metaphor for a person's life. And a person is born, and in the third year, which is when the party was held, Achashverosh's party was held, a child has an option, or a girl is entering into a different stage of education. And so he analyzes the characters and the events in this book, in the Megillah, as being analogous of a person's life. And he comments on this notion of Haidu and Kush. And he says, Haidu is connected to the word hide, glory, beauty, which we are taught, uh, which, which he associates with birth. And kush is blackness, darkness, that is associated with death. And then the Ramah of Moshe Isselis says, Rav and Shmuel have this dispute. Are 
India and Ethiopia, Hodu and Kush, next to each other, or are they at opposite ends of the kingdom? Part of what they're debating is, are life and death next to each other, or are they at opposite ends of the kingdom? And if we think about it, when we're born, we could say death happens a while later, opposite end of my life. Hopefully 120 years, right? You're born, you live your life, person passes away. And they're at opposite dimensions. And yet, in another way, life and death are very close to each other. My birth here is a kind of a death. So I am born into this world. But as I'm born into this world, it is a death relative to the world of the souls that I came from. And similarly, here in this world, when I pass away, there's no such thing as the end of life. I'm really transitioning from living in a physical dimension to living in a spiritual dimension. I experience that as death. But what is looked at as death here is really a birth into another dimension of reality. And um, I think that we, we have to look at the challenges that we experience in our lives in that way as well. In Kabbalah, the cave is compared, a cave is compared to a womb or to the grave. And you can see that at some level, I am locked in. If you're locked into a space and there's a challenge, what are you going to make of that challenge? Are you going to make it a womb, a place of growth and nurturing, or is it going to be a place of decay and death? And what we're saying over here is that even death, if you speak about life and death being next to each other, even death as we know it is really a kind of a womb. That that grave that a person is buried in is a transition into a higher state of reality. That is Haidu until Kush. And we want to rule and be masters of ourselves from birth to life. And as we enter, you know, in Hebrew, we say that a cemetery is called a Beis HaChaim, a house of the living. And it's not just metaphorically. We want to be fully alive in this life, and we want to be alive as we transition into the next life. And then we are told that Ahasuerus ruled over 127 states. Those 127 states should remind us of another number, 127, in the Torah where there are correlations between all things like this. And that is the fact that our mother, Sarah, lived for 127 years. And in fact, the rabbis teach us that because Sarah lived for 127 years, Esther merited to rule over 127 states. I once read a commentary that said, for every year of Sarah's life, a different country for every day of her life, it was a different city. And then I think for every hour, if I remember correctly, was another village. So there's some kind of visual metaphor of time and space being brought together in the relationship between these two women. The Medrash tells us that Rabbi Akiva was teaching his students and um, they were falling asleep. And in order to wake them up, he reminded them of this particular Medrash. And obviously the question is, why were the students of Rabbi Akiva falling asleep? And how did this Medrash help wake them up?
So the Tzemach Tzedek answers and says that falling asleep doesn't mean that they were falling asleep on the table, had a late night and couldn't keep their eyes open. It means spiritually they were letting themselves go. They, they didn't feel that the information that was being taught to them related to them. This is too high. This is something that is too lofty. It's not about me and my life. And Rabbi Akiva told them the story of Sarah and Esther to, to teach them, to guide them and motivate them to be spiritual overreachers because his message was as follows. Look, Esther was a young woman. She was doubly orphaned. We, are, we learn from the verse that describes Esther that her mother passed, her father passed away before she was born and her mother passed away in childbirth. That makes her doubly orphaned. And it was actually from the space of being doubly orphaned that the only one she could turn to was her father in heaven. And if you want to speak about it, uh, uh, the male and female components of God. This became her parent. God was her parent. And through relying on her creator, she managed to facilitate redemption for everyone. And redemption means I let go of my false imaginings, my delusions, my attachments to false security, even if it's parents and whatever that means for me in my life, and I attach myself to God. So she, Esther, became the facilitator of the redemption. But if we look at her life, we can say, here is this orphan. She's living many, many years after Sarah has passed away. And what becomes a guiding force in her life? A question, when will I reach a life that is of the caliber, the quality of my mother, Sarah? I don't want to just be born and move through life and spend the days or have the days be spent, not be a master of accounts, not be in control of my time and come to the next world and then we're done. I want to live a life of full meaning and not only that, I want to live a life that is of the caliber of my mother, Sarah. So we have a wonderful reciprocity that happens here between the two women. On the one hand, if Sarah had not lived her life as potently as she did, she would not have had the ability to impact her granddaughter, her future descendant's life. And if, if Esther, on the other hand, had not wanted to aspire to her, her, her great-great-great-grandmother's level, she would, not, she would not have actualized that in her life either. You know, if we, if we think of, of Sarah living her life, we're saying one year is a, is a nation, is a country. A day is a city. That's very palpable. It's a visual image. At some level, that could mean... You know, a few minutes is Park Avenue. An hour is the Champs-Élysées. Wherever you are, think about what am I doing today in this moment? Am I using my day fully? What does it mean down the line? What's it going to mean for my daughter or my son, for my friends or the children of the next generation? I have to live my day maxing out each minute. And then... The next generation has another question to ask of themselves and say, I want to live the fullest, most meaningful life I, I possibly can. I want to be inspired and live in a way that I make a difference. When will my deeds reach those 
of the patriarchs and matriarchs. So Rabbi Akiva said to his students, you may think that this information, whatever is being taught, is beyond you, but it's not. Always aspire. When it comes to matters of materialism or wealth, always look down. Who has less? Whom can I help? When it comes to matters of the spirit and the soul, I look up. Whom can I aspire to? I need to grow. So that's just a couple of insights from the very first verse of the book of Esther. Each verse is as replete and there are many more commentaries and explanations. Just a snippet, the tip of the iceberg. I hope it gives you something to think about. Have a wonderful holiday.